speaking of the church, that's what we're studying, is the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And um, we, uh, of course, you know the review, the basic outline. We've moved through chapter 1 and now through chapter 2, chapters 2 and 3 being the seven letters to the seven churches. And um, so far, we've covered the letter to the church in Ephesus and then the letter to the church in Smyrna and Pergamum and then last Thyatira and Thyatira we spent three lessons on because this is the longest and possibly the most um, complicated for lack of a better word of the seven letters <clears throat> but um, that brings us to chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 and the letter to the church at Sardis and um, I've entitled this, this is the fifth letter, and you see, I've entitled it the uh, lively but dead. Uh, you know, we went from Ephesus, strong but cold, uh, Smyrna, uh, real and rich but poor and persecuted, um, Pergamum, faithful but compromising, Thyatira, true to the faith but tolerating sin. Now we've got lively but dead. In fact, you could call this, excuse this, but you could call this the zombie church. And, um, and of course, Sardis is in the middle of Western Turkey. And um, you see it's on a route between Smyrna and Philadelphia. And you see the route that um, this has been taking, the first being Ephesus and then Smyrna and then Pergamum. Thyatira, Sardis, then you go to Philadelphia, Laodicea. So you see it's that circular clockwise mail route that we've mentioned before. As I say, this is the letter to the church in Sardis. Um, just remember this, we are talking about the church and we are talking about letters to the churches. But each individual letter is a unit of itself and therefore addressed to a real church is a real city, a real church in the latter half of nearly 100 AD, latter half first century. So these are real people in a real church with real issues and real problems and the letter is addressing those originally. Um, but it's also a collection of seven letters and of course a larger part a part of a larger work, that being the book of Revelation or the apocalypse itself, which is a letter to all of us in the church universal. So just remember that as we go through these messages, especially this one today, because this one is so severe, so tragic, so sad, that we might be tempted to say, that doesn't have anything to do with us. But there's a sense in which all of these messages apply to all people for all time. Some may apply to some churches more than others, and some may apply to some ages more than others, but there's definitely an element of application to every church in every age and to every person in every age. So let us not miss that by thinking, this is just not for us, this is not our church. Um, we dismiss things as not being relevant or applicable. We stand to miss what Christ would have us hear because what does he say in the dead center 
which we studied last time, the dead center of these seven letters in chapter two, verse 23, he says that the purpose, the core message was that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. And if that's not clear enough, at the end of every one of the seven letters, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So why does he keep repeating that? He wants us to hear what he's got to say. This is not just to these churches in the first century, but to us. And now, just as we get into it, I want you to just think about this as a beginning consideration. I'm going to read the text. And in the text, right off the bat, verse 1, he says that you're dead. You have a reputation, you have a name, that you're alive or lively, but you're dead. So think about how sobering that would be for Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the sovereign Lord over all people, all churches, to tell you that you're dead. That's a very sobering and tragic statement to hear. And yet, again, what did I just say? There's a sense in which all of these apply to all people for all time. So what we need to do is to see how would God apply this to our hearts as individuals? How would God apply this to our church as a church? Because we may think, well, we're definitely not a dead church. Or you may even think I'm definitely not a uh, dead Christian. But there's a sense in which we all tend toward death in our daily living. And we'll get into that a little bit more. All right, let's read it. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, <clears throat> and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Very short, six-verse letter, shortest of the seven. <clears throat> and we're going to follow the same outline we've been using for all the letters, and that is mainly the uh, different elements of the letter. And, of course, the first is obvious in the command, the command to write, where Christ himself commands the seer, John the apostle, to write to the angel of the church in Sardis. So, again, back to my introduction, the very words of Jesus, this is dictation. Jesus Christ is speaking to us. He's speaking to all churches for all time. So we need to pay attention. Second element is the church and the city. Uh, Sardis comes from the Greek word sardinos, which is the name of the stone, some translations call the carnelian stone. 
I don't know if I've ever seen a sardis stone, but it's supposed to be a precious gemstone. It's kind of brownish color, but when you pass light through, it's supposed to be a deep red. Anyway, again, that's a reference to the culture there. This was a very rich, um, precious stones, precious metals, gold, silver abounded in this region. Sardis was the capital of the ancient Lydian Empire, which was a western um, vassal of the Persian Empire. Now I'm talking about as far back as 1200 BC when it was founded. <clears throat> it was the capital of the Lydian kingdom and it prospered and grew for a long time. Um, the location was very specific and chosen because of its geographical uniqueness. Um, it's 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, 45 miles east of Smyrna. And at the time, John wrote the letter close to AD 100. The population is estimated at 120,000. It's in the middle of the Hermas Valley at the foot of Mount Mollus, on which a citadel or an acropolis. Acropolis is Greek combination of two words. You know, anytime you see O-P-O-L-I-S, like metropolis, that refers to a city. And so Acropolis means the uppermost part of the city or the top city, the highest city. And so an Acropolis is an elevated uh, natural feature of the landscape in which they founded the city upon. Um, here's a picture of it today. You see this is taken from the valley below and 1,500 feet above the valley plain, the Acropolis rose up. And so the city was founded on top of that Acropolis. It was very strategic. Obviously, everybody thought about how would you defend yourself. And this Acropolis was a plateau that jutted up on three sides, and the only approach was from the south. On the northwest and east, <clears throat> you had vertical rock, smooth rock walls that were almost vertical and supposedly were impregnable, that you could not scale those walls. And so it provided a very confident high ground which they built the city. The patron deity of the city was the Asian goddess Cybele, who was known as the Greek goddess Artemis elsewhere, the Roman god Diana. We've talked about her before in Ephesus. Here's a layout of the original city. Down here you see the Acropolis. This is the elevated part. And then you see the temple of Artemis or Diana. <clears throat> the river, um, which by the way, the river, um, legend has it that this river is where King Midas washed his hands just before he died. You know, they had the Midas touch of gold. And then later they discovered gold in the river. So it became a big mining center for gold and uh, silver. And by the way, one unique feature of Sardis is that it's supposedly the first place on earth that minted coins. The, the oldest coins ever discovered were minted in Sardis. So gold and silver coins began being minted at Sardis and that led to one of the, uh, and I guess just to continue in that vein, so it was known for precious metals, it was known for making jewelry, it was known also for wool, uh, making wool garments and dyeing. Supposedly, the Sardinians, they claim that 
uh, the art of commercial dyeing of fabric was invented there also. Certainly one of the oldest dyeing operations in the world. So um, that's the kind of culture it was. So think about this, just to bring it to contemporary thought. It was a luxury city. You had gold, silver, jewelry, fine garments, luxurious, luxurious clothing. What does that sound like? Sound like Beverly Hills or something? And it was, so also the city was known for its luxurious and loose living lifestyle. Um, here's an aerial view. You can see, again, the mountain sticking up and the ruins, because it's not a city today. These are just ruins they've unearthed. Um, here's the ruin. The, the temple to uh, Diana was one of the largest in the world. It was 160 feet by 300 feet, column 78 feet tall. Um, no, 58 feet tall, and there were 78 of them. Two of them still stand. And you see, they expanded the city. The, the original city was on top, but they expanded the city of the valley below. And then, of course, when they were attacked, which happened often, they withdrew to the top and abandoned that city and then um, survived by being on top. This is from on top looking down on the nearby area. This is, again, looking at the Acropolis through the Temple of Diana. This is one of the oldest Jewish synagogues ever discovered from the ancient world. This Jewish synagogue ruin is in uh, Sardis. It dates back to the uh, third century, which again indicates the Jewish presence there. This is a ruin of a, a gymnasium that was there in the first century. It covered five acres. It had a workout area. Um, so just think about for ancient world to have a gymnasium and workout spa, this was a luxurious, you know. That was under Greek rule. And then of course, it became under Roman rule by the time uh, the letter was written. Again, a close up, and this is modern day view of the Acropolis. Uh, but I, I wanna mention to you how uh, significant I think that we need to put things in context. You know, you always need to take scripture in context. The context of Sardis was that there was an expression that to conquer the, the Acropolis of Sardis was like saying, putting toothpaste back in the tube. It was like doing the impossible. That was a well-known expression in the ancient world that when people say, well, that's like conquering the Acropolis of Sardis. It was an impossibility. Also, King Croesus, and I was embarrassed because I asked Debbie about this, and she said, yeah. I said, have you ever heard of King Croesus? She said, yeah, as rich as Croesus? I said, yeah. I said, that's what all the people I read said. So I, anyway, my wife obviously is well-read, and I'm not. But I never heard of King Croesus, so I hope some of y'all feel the way I do, that I've never heard of him. But anyway, that's a, that's a common expression, too, is that, Riches Croesus. So it was kind of like the Midas touch. Well, then Croesus was the king of this area in the sixth century. And I know you think, well, this is a lot of trivia, but I promise you this is going to tie into the point of the lesson. King Croesus thought he would rebel against the Persian vassal of state he was under, and that was King Cyrus of Persia. And he was at the end, the western end of the road to Susa, Persia. And so he marched against Persia with his army, 
was soundly defeated, crazy to conquer, to even try to attack Persia. And so they rapidly retreated all the way back to Sardis and went up into their Acropolis and felt safe. Well, of course, if y'all know anything about King Cyrus, he came for revenge. And uh, he besieged the city, and of course, King Croesus thought, no worries, I'm up in the Acropolis. All we gotta do is guard one access, they can't get to me. This is 595 BC. They did not guard any of the three sides, except the south entrance, where they could come up. And of course, yeah, and Chuck is exactly right. The rangers scaled those walls. And the historians say that a child could have defended the city from the attack because all you had to do was drop something on them coming up the wall. And they came up without notice and conquered the city. That happened again in 195 BC when Antiochus the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, y'all know from uh, other Bible lessons. Anyway, he did the same thing and he hired a Cretan mountain climber who scaled the walls and did the same thing by himself, led the way for people to come in and conquer the city. So what's the point of that? Their confidence was their what? Weakness. They were confident in their strength and they did not even watch in the area of where they felt was strong. They had no watchful eye. So Christ, as in all the letters, introduces himself and describes himself in a way that already has the solution. I love this about these letters. The way Christ describes himself in every letter, if you think about it, that's the solution to the problem the church has. Think about it in this case. He says, I'm the one who has the seven spirits of God. I'm the one who has the seven stars. First of all, you remember the seven spirits? This is from uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 4 in the introduction. That doesn't mean that there are seven distinct Holy Spirits, but it refers to the completeness, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time, but that's from Isaiah 11:2 and Zechariah 4:2, where we see that the Spirit of the Lord is a spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength and knowledge and fear. And so it refers again to the fullness of the Spirit. It really goes back to Romans 8, 9, because in Romans 8, 9, the Holy Spirit is described as whose spirit? The Spirit of Christ. And see, and I think a lot of times some of the mysticism about the Holy Spirit is removed if we remember that the Holy Spirit is just like Christ. He is the Spirit of Christ. And so he is the helper, the parakletos of Christ. So the life-giving power of God comes through the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. They're dead, they need life. I am the one who has the seven spirits of God. Also, they need direction. They need um, God's sovereign power and control over their life. And he says, I'm the one who holds the seven stars. Remember in chapter one, um, we're in verses 16 and 20, we see these seven stars explained to us as the seven angels of the seven churches. 
They are the representatives, the messengers of the churches. And so he who holds the messenger, he who holds the representative of the church is he who holds the church. So Christ is the life-giving spirit of God. Christ is the sovereign, controlling head of the church who controls every representative and every person in every church. And again, there, without getting into detail yet, that's the answer to the problems the church face. Next element, the commendation. And notice I put commendation in quotes because in every other letter, the next element is a commendation where Christ points out what he knows about their deeds or works that are good. But notice here, in general, I don't mean in specific to the few, but in general, for the church in general, what does he commend this church for? Nothing. Nothing. This church and the church that Laodicea are the two of which Christ has no commendation generally about the church in general. In fact, notice what he says about I know what? I know that you have a name. Like, and this is really bordering on sarcasm because he's saying, I know you've got a reputation, but I know you've got a name that you're alive. You're lively. You know, you got stuff going on. The world sees you as very important, as very powerful, as very hilt. You're in the Beverly Hills. You are movers and shakers, but... And if, we, if, if we're not clear that this is no commendation, just look at the next element, which is um, they have a name that they are alive, but look at the uh, next one, is that he had no commendation, nothing good to say, but his criticism. What is the criticism? But I have this against you. What is that? That you are dead. Again, I don't think we fully understand what it'd be like to have Christ write a letter to us and tell us, you got a name for being alive, but I say you're dead. Can you imagine if all the world thought you were the greatest church in America, but Jesus Christ told you, but you're dead. That should be very sobering. And a severe, tragic statement points out their uh, hypocritical and uh, sarcastic contradiction to reality. They had deeds of wood, hay, stubble, of works of their own. They weren't gold, silver, precious stones for which their city was known. They were not gold, silver, precious stones that were works of God. They were wood, hay, stubble, works of men. They were external, done for the wrong motivations, not internal, done by God through them. We read this and don't take it so, but can you imagine Jesus saying that? That's a great point, Chuck. I mean, that leads exactly into where I want to go. Is As Chuck said, I don't know if y'all heard that, but Chuck said death is separation. So, Jesus is saying they have been separated 
you're dead, you're in separation. Because they weren't literally physically dead, but he meant what? They were spiritually dead. So here's my question. Well, first of all, will we all agree then the issue is with them, the church? Notice Christ doesn't go into you're under persecution. Christ doesn't go into you've got false teaching. Christ doesn't go into you've got false teachers. Christ doesn't go into you've got Jezebels. Christ, you know, you remember what we've been through in all these other churches. He doesn't mention any of that. He says, you are dead. Now, surely there was persecution. Surely there was false teaching. Surely there were other out external issues. But that's not the problem. Because why? God is greater than any of those worldly issues. That's a great point, Bruce. He's alluding to 2 Corinthians 13, 5, where it says, test yourself, examine yourself to see whether you be in faith. And of course, that's a direction to us as individuals. But isn't that true of churches too? As we should not take the fact that we walked an aisle one day, prayed a prayer, signed a card as proof of our salvation. As a church, we shouldn't take the fact that, well, we're, you know, we're having big pizza parties and a lot of people coming. We're organized as a church. We've got a great building. Look how many people show up on Sunday. So we're obviously doing great, you know. Uh, but the measure of life is activity. And activity spiritually, not physically, internally, not externally. So, um, again, the issue is internal, not external. They were zombies. They were walking dead. They had motion, but they were dead on the inside. So what is the root problem here? Chuck mentioned separation. We all can agree that the issue is death, and it's death of the people in the church. So what is their root problem? What brought about this death? And, of course, hints are on the screen, Right? What, what brings about separation? Sin. Because like Colossians 2.13, you were dead in your transgressions. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. So what brings about separation? Sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, that brought about death. And the wages of sin is death. So sin begets separation and then sin produces separation. It continues to produce separation. So sin is the source and root of all deadness. Now, can believers sin? Absolutely. But we are not slaves to sin. See, that's the point. As believers, we have been freed from the slavery to sin. An unbeliever can do nothing but sin. A believer cannot sin. And one day in heaven, we will be such that there will be no sin and that we cannot sin. Right now, we can not sin, if you understand the distinction I'm saying. We have the power by the Spirit of God to not sin. But one day, it'll be such that there's not the possibility of sin. So, What's the key to not being dead in Christ's eyes? Is avoid sin. I mean, I know this is profound. 
I know y'all are thinking, boy, that's complicated. But I just think I don't want to pass up that it's very clear how deadness comes into our lives. It's very clear how deadness comes into a church. It's through sin. Any, any comments about that? I know we're just on verse 1, but I think that is the hinge point of the central message here is that sin brought them into deadness. All right, look at the next point. He gets into the caution and the call. He warns and commands them starting in verse 2. And the warning and command comes. Um, look at the second part where he says, I have found your deeds not completed. I have, or another way to say it is, I have not found your deeds completed or acceptable in the sight of my God. All right, so I want to ask you a question. Does that mean that our deeds, our works, some are acceptable to God and some are not acceptable to God? Well, I already mentioned the passage in Corinthians where it says that our deeds will be judged and that those that are wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up. And this is believers. Believers' works will be judged. Wood, hay, stubble burned up. Gold, silver, precious stones will remain. What's the difference? Like, I came to church today. Is that wood, hay, stubble, or is that gold, silver, precious stone? Amen. That's the point. You can't tell from what I did externally. It matters, did I come for the right motivation? So it's not what they did, but why they did it. If it's not of faith, you can't please him. And Romans 14, if it's not of faith, it's sin. And see, that's the thing that I think we forget is that it's the works that God does through us that matter. It's not the works we do for God. It's the works that God does through us that matter. Because really, in our own nature, our own flesh, what can we do for God? It's in our nature, it's in our sinful nature to be works-oriented. That's why the Roman system, the Roman Catholicism system is so effective because it, it appeals to your works-oriented nature that you earn merit. So it works. That's a great, a grace orientation is totally foreign. Notice what follows in the next verses here. The step... I see a five-step process for restoration. You know, um, I think it's really neat that God is merciful in the midst of severe condemnation and criticism that he provides. Here is hope that, number one, they wake up. Number two, they strengthen the things that remain that were about to die. And by the way, that wake up, go back to the symbolism of the Acropolis. That literally means be on guard, be on the alert, wake up, strengthen that which remains, fortify that which is strong. Remember what you've received and heard. Go back to the basics, go back to theology proper, go back to the gospel, go back to blocking and tackling. Start with the basics and keep it. Hold fast is another way to put that. Keep it. And then, of course, last is repent. Repent is the active, most active of these five. It involves a change of mind and action. You're going this way, do a 180-degree turn, and go the other way. And the reason 
that he gives them this is because there are consequences. If you don't wake up, then I'm coming to you in judgment. And without getting into the details, the notes will be on the website. You can read all about this, but I think it's clear this is not referring to the second coming at the end of the age. This is referring to the Christ coming in judgment upon that church. So he comes like he comes upon us in judgment to chasten us. He chastens those whom he loves. He comes upon churches in judgment too. And notice the emphasis is not the suddenness, but the unexpectedness. What thief gives you notice, like I'm going to come rob your house at 3 a.m.? That doesn't happen. Coming like a thief means what? You don't know when I'm coming. I'm coming. And then notice, this is very encouraging. In the midst of all this, verse 4, but you have a few. Here is the called that God always has his remnant, just like in the days of Elijah, where not everybody had given over to the prophets of Baal. There were still those people of God left in Israel. Likewise, even in Sardis, the dead church, there were those few who had not sold their garments. And then he starts listing their values. Um, this is under what I think we could call the conquest or the victors, those who overcome, because the reason why I put that with the uh, promises in verse 5 is think about it this way. If they're the few of the called, are they not believers? They're real believers. So, and have we not defined overcomers as genuine believers? 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5 says that if you really believe in Jesus being the Son of God, then you are an overcomer. So, what are the promises to the overcomer? The first two in verse 4, that uh, they will walk in white. That's the purity and holiness of white. <clears throat> because they are worthy. And um, then secondly, they will, uh, they will walk with him, I'm sorry. And then secondly, they will be clothed in white. And then verse 5, notice it says that um, to him who overcomes, he will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I don't have time, but again, this will be in the notes. But there are a lot of theories about this verse that I will not erase his name from book of life. A lot of people think this refers to Old Testament book. It mentioned in Exodus 32, that's a book of physical life, not spiritual life, not eternal life. Some think it refers to the book of deeds. It's not that. It's a book of life, about eternal life, obviously. So this is referring to the book of eternal life. And if we look at how it's used elsewhere, Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8, it says in those two passages that those names are written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. So why does Jesus say that, why doesn't he do this in the positive? You say, well, why does he give a negative promise? Because see, it is a promise, it's not a threat. Why do we make it into a threat? People read it and say, oh, that means you can lose your salvation that you can get your name erased. No, it says, I will not erase your name. And you say, well, why didn't he just say, well, I will write your name in the book of life. What's the obvious answer to that? When were your names written in the book of life? Before the foundation of the world. So they're already there. So he can't write your name in, it's there. It was written before 
anything happened. And there's a lot of discussion about it. The notes go into more detail about it. But just consider this a promise of eternal security. He's saying, and it's a double negative. He says, I will know not. Just be sure we don't miss it. I will know not erase your name from the book of life. It can't happen. I put it in there before eternity began. I'm not taking it out. I, I love where, you know, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And right after that, what does it say? For it is God who is at work within you. I mean, so which is it? Both. Like Eric said, we're to work because we've been elected and saved. But because of that, we have nothing to fear. All right. He has an ear, let him hear this is in. But I, 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 want, I want to bring you back to something as a close. All right, so this church was dead. God said it's dead. So there's no hope. Is that right? No. Because he says, I have a few. I have a few. And so he says, what? Wake up, remember, keep it, hold fast, strengthen that which remains, and repent. Well, what was the outcome? Well, we don't know. But historians write of church activity two and three centuries. Of course, the city's gone now. But they write of Christian church activity in Sardis centuries after this. And I think this is so neat because here is the temple, an aerial view of Sardis. You see that red mark I put on there? See that little structure? You know what that is? Fourth century Christian church. The letter was written in the first century. So I like to think of God's gracious overcoming. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. And I like to think that in spite of the fact that this church was dead, that the few listened and obeyed and ultimately God restored and rebuilt the church. And one of the first earliest church buildings ever discovered is in Sardis. And notice where it is. They built it like they tried to see how close can we get to the temple of Artemis. Like, yeah. I just think that is such a cool story. I mean, I, I'm imagining, I don't know any facts. I don't want y'all to think I'm teaching this as biblical proof, but it's just neat to think that the church recovered and was revived and restored. That is so neat to me. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. But we got to go. I know we're over time. But I just, I think that's such a great story.